This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Austin Campbell, welcome to Rubicon Crypto Daily Briefing. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you. There's so much to talk about. Uh, we were talking a little bit off camera about what's happening in stablecoins, the importance of this ecosystem to the country, obviously the importance of the crypto ecosystem. But before we talk about this, I just want to do a quick brief on price action uh, coming out today. I'm looking at Bitcoin right now on my screen, trading at 28037 bucks. Looks like it's off about 1.5%. Uh, in the last 24 hours, trailing seven days off a little bit over 7%. Obviously, this coming off a significant rally. As we switch over to Ethereum, looks like it's trading on my screen, $1,903, trailing 24 hours off about, I'll call it two and a quarter percent, a little bit less, trailing seven days off over seven and a half percent. So roughly trading in line with Bitcoin, obviously, again, off the back of a considerable rally there. Uh, Austin, I know you watch a lot of things in the space. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about stablecoins. We're truly going to deep dive in just a second. Any thoughts on where we are right now in this market? Obviously, uh, we've seen some uh, some buying. Uh, we've seen some buying and we've seen the rise in price. And now we're seeing a little bit of selling pressure. Yeah, the main thing that's caught my interest is basically how boring some of the price action has been on the back of the Ethereum upgrade. I know there are a lot of predictions that that could get very wild, and instead it's been quite stable, which I think indicates a lot of the maturity of the ecosystem that's emerged in the space. Yeah, sometimes boring is good. Austin, you have a really interesting background, which is anything but boring. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to talk more about stable coins. Yeah, sounds good. So my background, um, as I have joked elsewhere, is basically being a grouchy fixed income person. So way back in the depths of the past, I ran trading desks at JP Morgan dealing with cash stability instruments that needed to trade, and this will sound familiar, sort of call it a $1 stable nav over time, even though their underlying instruments were highly diverse and varied. So as I've joked, I traded stable coins before they were ever on a blockchain. And then after that, I've kicked around. I was at a place called Stone Ridge, which is Nidig's parent, which is where I really got into crypto. Um, I was at City. I was the co-head of digital assets rates trading along with my friend Lee Smallwood. And then I was at Paxos, where I was the head of portfolio management, the chief risk officer for one of our entities there. And now I am a professor and have my own consulting firm helping people in the crypto space. And you're at Columbia University, where you do this Columbia University Business School. That is correct. Yes, I teach one of the blockchain courses there. You know, Austin, I spent a little bit of time on a fixed income trading floor myself, not as a trader on the tech side, uh, but it's really interesting to have people who have that experience because it definitely provides a different window uh, into digital assets. Yeah, I think one of the things that I experienced coming into the space is a lot of the people who are here either came from the tech world or when they came from finance, came from equities, came from prime brokerage, places that were very like aspirational and narrative driven. 
So it's a little bit different to be the person who's like obsessed with market structure and mathematics when you're in that kind of space, but that's ultimately what drives a lot of fixed income. Yeah, absolutely. So talking about that obsession, let's talk about your latest obsession, which is stable coins. I imagine many of our viewers will have recently seen your testimony down on the Hill where you talked about this topic, 50,000 foot. Where are we right now? What matters? What do people need to know? So I would say the biggest thing that's important right now is in the United States, we are in complete chaos as we look at the stablecoin space. If I was trying to run one here, I have multiple regulators all fighting about who's going to be in charge of me. And there's not a clear answer. And the rules between those regulators are mutually contradictory. So without knowing in advance who I answer to, it's impossible to comply. What that means is the space is moving offshore. Other jurisdictions are passing legislation that provides a very clear pathway. And I would tell you that from an American perspective, we're probably in the process of fumbling the ball on stable coins. On the other hand, this is an incredible opportunity for the rest of the world. If you're in Europe, if you're in the UK, if you're in Singapore, if you're in Hong Kong, times have probably never been better to look at launching a project and trying to build something really sustainable in the space. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You talked about this uh, at the hearing. Uh, you know, we're going to talk a lot more about U.S. competitiveness and, of course, the importance and the primacy of the dollar as the global reserve currency for the United States. But I want to talk first about this regulatory confusion, this regulatory chaos. You have this great metaphor in your congressional testimony where you said it's like you show up to play a game and you're not sure whether you're playing football or baseball. That's not just about who you're answering to in terms of the reporting structure. That's about the, the basic fundamental framework uh, for the way that you have to do business. It really is a chaotic time. Talk a little bit about where we are right now, the challenges that presents, and how you see that sort of unfolding as we go forward. Yeah, so that problem really comes into focus when you try to think of like the microstructure of what you need to do to run a business. So take some of the major U.S. stablecoin issuers. If I'm looking at Circle, if I'm looking at Paxos, if I'm looking at Gemini, and I'm trying to figure out how to structure my business, if I have to answer to a bank regulator, I'm thinking about things like capital reporting, capital standards, risk controls around liquidity, and sort of call it the prudential design that prevents all of our banks from collapsing because people do really silly stuff inside of them. At least some of so, so, them. Obviously, so for folks who, have problems. who don't have, you know, one of the interesting things about this space is we have people who come to us uh, from the technology side. We have people who come yeah. to us from the finance side. And we don't always speak the same languages. Talk a little bit about what you mean by the prudential aspect of running a bank. Obviously, people who are in finance will know exactly what this means. Uh, but for folks who don't have the benefit of that background, talk about what you mean when you talk about how to tailor that microstructure, if you could define that as well, uh, to the regulators in a banking environment. Yeah, so let's zoom out and be very simple for the purpose of explanation and talk about what would be a really like basic sort of bank, which is on one side, you will take deposits from people. That's how banks work. When you give them money and it goes into your checking account, it goes into your savings account, you should be aware you are technically lending your money to the bank. The bank will then take that money and go lend onwards with that. So they're going to go to people in the market and lend for homes, lend for businesses, potentially buy government debt. And what happens is if you zoom out, Banks are taking risk in their loan portfolio, but they owe all their depositors money back at some point. To make sure that goes well, regulators really have a couple of levers that they use to control banks. Number one is limiting the kinds of assets and permissible activity. So like I might be able to lend against a mortgage, but I should not go take a YOLO into a massive amount of Tesla stock if I'm a bank with depositor money. At the same time, they're going to require controls right around reporting, around liquidity, around risk, so that they have a 100% view into the activities of the bank if that's done properly, obviously not always is. 
And then they're also going to require the bank to hold excess capital with the idea that losses that the bank takes should impact the owners of the bank, the shareholders first, and only when things get truly dire should the depositors be impacted. All of those are levers used to control banks. The punchline is if you're at a bank in America, there's a lot of strings attached that come along with that status. Yeah. So, you know, to begin with, this is the uh, the old phrase that people have probably heard on this show before, uh, which is, of course, borrowing short to lend long. Uh, if that sounds like an inherently risky proposition, it certainly can be if you have bankers making wildly speculative bets. We've, in fact, seen this here uh, in the 2007-2008 period. Uh, now, you, of course, you have a whole raft of additional federal regulation on top of all the regulation uh, from the federal and state level that we saw from the 1930s vintage, the last time uh, the last time we saw uh, sort of this massive hypertrophy in the financial services sector. But let's connect all of this back to stable coins. Explain how all of this that we've talked about, which has kind of been a great uh, primer 101 on how banking works, applies to the stable coin ecosystem. Right. So when you look at a stable coin, and I said this in my testimony, they look either when designed properly, like very conservative banks or like government money market funds, which is where that regulatory confusion comes back in. People start arguing, are these banks or are they securities? Right. We know what Gary Gensler's view is, but to be clear, his view is not shared by the banking regulators who themselves think they regulate these things. What that means is that a stable coin fundamentally looks like the activity we just described. Right. I take deposits. Those are the people minting the tokens. And I take those deposits and I go invest them in financial assets that are supposed to support those deposits. In the case of most of the onshore stable coins now, that is a combination of bank deposits, of T-bills, and of something called overnight reverse repo, which you can think of as very short-term loans, in this case, secured by treasuries for the stable coin holders. So they are engaging in the same sort of like sort of borrowing to lending dance. Only in this case, knowing that the deposits are highly volatile within stable coins, they don't really lend long. They also lend pretty short. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah. And so obviously that mix is about what creates the stability uh, or lack of stability in the underlying stable coins. Let's talk about the current state of play uh, in the stable coin space. I know we have a chart of the relative market caps uh, of the stable coins that are most used here in the United States and abroad. Uh, obviously, when you look at this chart, when you see that uh, when you see that green line, you see Tether uh, clearly at the top of the league tables there. Talk a little bit about that USDC underneath it uh, and BUSD. That, of course, is the Binance stable coin. Uh, talk a little bit about this landscape, Austin, uh, and how you see it, how you think about it, and what, frankly, it means to have this being offshore rather than regulated onshore here in the United States. So what I see when I look at that chart is concrete evidence that the difficulty of running a stablecoin in the United States is becoming such that people are just leaving, right? So if you look at the history of Tether, Tether is not particularly transparent. They disclose a little bit about reserves, but I would describe it at best as a little bit. And they have not been particularly open about whether they are fully reserved at all times, what their real business operations are, what they plan to hold in the future. 
On the other hand, if you look at Paxos, you know, which is the issuer of BUSD, and you look at Circle, they both move to a standard of complete and total disclosure. So you know down to the penny what is in each of those stable coins. They disclose their bank deposits, they disclose all of their securities holdings. That is a radical degree of transparency comparatively. They have much better consumer protections around them with guarantees of redemption, better holding structures, and all the sorts of things that if you were a pretty granular lawyer in the fixed income space, you would care about. And so to have a situation where everything is moving offshore because we're so worried that U.S. regulators will just stamp these things out of existence and into something that is, quite frankly, less transparent, less consumer protective, tells you how toxic the onshore regulatory regime is. But it also tells you how big the opportunity offshore is. If you build a transparent consumer protective version, it will probably dominate the current environment. I want to talk a little bit about something since you uh, mentioned BUSD there uh, that you've written about in the past. We should say that you've worked with Paxos uh, in the past. You could talk a little bit about that. But tell us, uh, because you wrote about it in Coindesk and you wrote about it very eloquently, uh, what your view is with what happened with the relationship between Paxos and Binance uh, in terms of the B, uh, in terms of the stablecoin uh, that Paxos was securing for Binance. Yeah, so if you look at BUSD, it's a little bit of a confusing story, which is to say the original BUSD, which is the one that was issued by Paxos, was approved in 2019 by the NYDFS. That only exists on the Ethereum chain. And so for that version, there's a lot of strings attached. And what's going on there is Paxos is managing the reserves, managing the mint and burn and the issuance, but Binance is by and large the distributor. So their name was on the token. It was distributed through their platform. So you can kind of think of this as like front end and back end, if you want to simplify it in your head from a tech perspective. In addition to that, because BUSD only existed on the Ethereum chain and the canonical version, there was also a wrapped version, which is to say Binance would take tokens, lock them in some sort of bridge contract, and then create the wrapped version of it, which is what existed on things like the Binance Smart Chain or some of the other chains out there. So, that so what they not... would do is they would show essentially the reserves. They would show the yes. uh, the digital hashes of that. You could verify it, and then they would create uh, they would create liabilities in a sense against those assets that were then disclosed publicly uh, through a, an, an open uh, sort of standard. Yeah, that's correct. It worked pretty much like any other bridge worked, right? Like you hold tokens on one side, you have the wrapped version on the other side. Yeah. Okay, so what happened there? <laughs> well, I was going to say, you mean in the sense of what happened with the NYDFS? Yeah, I mean, and this idea that uh, what this, the statements that, uh, that the state of New York made uh, and the ultimate outcome, which is that it no longer exists. Yeah, so I would say the NYDFS specifically always had concerns around representations of the activities of the stablecoin other than on the Ethereum chain. They have always felt to try to represent their position adequately that they weren't getting enough disclosure and not understanding enough of what was going on there and had some concerns about how it was managed. I think some of this is probably just poor communication, to be totally honest. But the net result of that is that the NYDFS banned Paxos from minting more BUSD. So importantly, it does exist in the sense that the reserves were all there, the stable coins still existed, but they yep. could no longer create new stable coins and all people could essentially do was redeem it over time. So when you look at the previous chart that was up on the screen, you will see from the point of that order from the NYDFS, it's basically just a downtrend for BUSD and that's because you can't mint more of it. You can still redeem it, 
all of the money is there in the reserves, right? Like that is actually held at custodians, right? Like the state streets, the bonies of the world, the physical dollars are there. It's just a question of slowly unwinding all of that to get it out for the holders of BUSD. So I would tell you it's a product and unwind as opposed yeah. to one that was call it disruptively shut down. Yeah, I, I should say no longer exists as, a, as an ongoing business model that they are currently operating. Uh, but of course, as you say, the redemptions continue. By the way, I believe it's on a redemption schedule where they are attempting to extinguish it after X number of years. I don't know what the exact timetable is, but the ultimate goal uh, is to take it out of existence. That is correct. But I, I raise that point specifically because there's a big difference between going out of existence in the form of something like UST and being able to be unwound in orderly fashion. Yes, a very important point, especially in this space. As we've seen, uh, the disorderly unwinds happen before and it causes a tremendous uh, amount of pain for people who are invested in that space. Let's talk about this a little bit more, uh, a little bit more broadly uh, to get the context on this, because this is an issue I think that you've been incredibly eloquent on. Uh, and there are two issues uh, that are related, uh, though not identical, that I think are incredibly important to discuss. On the one hand, uh, I'm talking about U.S. competitiveness globally. Obviously, uh, for anyone who's been paying attention for the last several decades, Silicon Valley, the innovation economy, has been a tremendous, tremendous boon. Uh, to the U.S. economy more broadly. Uh, that's one component of it. Uh, that's something that would be true of any industry, but there's something special about the, the uh, blockchain space, particularly uh, with regard to stable coins, which is the idea of the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency, the opportunities there, and the risks uh, if this is not handled uh, in a way that supports the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency. Talk a little bit about those two points in your view. How do you think about global competitiveness? How do you think about the importance of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency and how stable coins can support both? So zooming out a little bit, I would say as a veteran of the financial services industry who's thought a lot about 2008, the real innovation here is the blockchain, right? Like a global neutral platform for the simultaneous exchange of all goods is an incredibly powerful tool. I think over the next, call it 10, 20, 30 years, you will see increasing tokenization of most forms of assets so that you can exchange them efficiently and without counterparty credit risk. And when you exchange an asset, you need money. Right? Like if you go to buy a coffee, if you go to buy a car, if you go to buy a bond, if you go to buy a stock, you're typically not bartering. I don't offer them my services as a professor. I don't offer them my services as a consultant. I'm not trading them a table, right? Like I pay for it with, in my case, dollars typically. And so what's most important to me about stable coins is that they serve as money on the blockchain, right? Like this is a representation of the central thing that people use to exchange. And so whatever is preferred on the blockchain is going to become the standard for that space. So if crypto continues to grow at the pace it's grown from 2012 to present, and there is going to be a form of money on the blockchain and we prevent that form of money from being the dollar, I think that is a problem for the United States. If that's the Euro, if that's the Yuan, it will lead to another currency eroding the dollar's status and starting to become the preferred method of exchange globally. And for folks who are not really uh, thinking about the macro as often as you do, let's talk about why the U.S. dollar being the global reserve currency has been such an important asset since the Bretton Woods period. Uh, this is something that people maybe on the tech side haven't given as much thought to as you have. Why is it so important that the dollar maintain its reserve currency status from the perspective of U.S. competitiveness, national security, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, so I would say being the reserve currency fundamentally does two pretty important things for you in the context of this debate. One is that it causes everybody else to end up with dollars, which means they want to invest them, which means they typically invest them in America, 
right? If we're thinking about funding the deficit, if we're thinking about funding for American companies and American projects, this leads to a huge amount of capital showing up here so long as we have open markets, which in America we do. So this kind of allows us to be globally competitive in a way that countries without the reserve currency status essentially call it pay more. The second part is exactly as I alluded to in my testimony, from a national security perspective, when you are the center of exchange for everybody, you see all the data, right? If that moves somewhere right. else, we no longer control that. Somebody else does. And so when you're thinking about interdicting activity that is genuinely bad for the world, because I'll just say, you know, as a generic statement, pretty much all forms of terrorism are bad. So if you're trying to cut off, you know, terrorism financing, you would like to be able to control the pipes that money is flowing through and understand where it is flowing around, that's much harder if it's not in your currency or through your systems. Yeah, and also there's another attribute of this, which is the pricing and denomination of commodities prices, uh, the so-called petrodollar system in the United States. Talk a little bit about that and why it matters. Yeah, I mean, long story short, when everything priced in dollars and everybody exchanges dollars for it, everybody wants to own the dollar, right? If I'm going to buy oil globally, even if it's two non-American countries trading, they typically settle it in dollars. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. And this is something that, by the way, has come under question lately uh, when you see uh, the Chinese attempting to negotiate yuan-denominated payments uh, across the world with various producers of petroleum and petroleum products. Yeah, that is completely correct. And the interesting part about that is that, you know, you'll see takes on places like Twitter and out in the world that the dollar is somehow magically going to lose its reserve currency status overnight. That's typically not how things work. Things erode slowly over time. So each of these is like a brick and another wall that's being built at the same time our wall is slowly eroding, if you think of it that way. So as I watch all of these things, stable coins are a good way to start putting more bricks back on the wall for the dollar. And I think it would be profoundly misunderstood by the United States to block that innovation. Like people are trying to give us money to put into like treasury debt. We're telling them, no, that's a little bit bizarre. Yeah, this uh, sort of reminds me of the epigraph for American Psycho. It's a talking head song. And as things fell apart, nobody paid much attention. When they happen slowly, it's difficult to see them and difficult to feel them. One of the pieces of data that we've gotten on this uh, in the last week, of course, is Mika. This is the framework agreement in Europe uh, to define a framework regulatory uh, environment for crypto assets. Talk a little bit about that, particularly in its role as a competing power center for the United States and what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, so I think the European Union deserves a ton of credit here because Mika was no small undertaking. This is a complete and total framework for the handling of crypto assets across the entire continent. So the first part to think about here is in terms of places in the world with complete clarity around crypto, the EU is now the single largest economy that has given that complete clarity with this bill, right? Everywhere else, like the United States, we still have some degree of chaos internally. You know, China still remains sort of fractured on how they're handling it, but Europe has gone ahead and provided clarity. So even if the bill's not perfect, I think it's an incredibly important step. It's going to attract a lot of business there because now you know how to perform legally and you can do this in a way where there's not going to be a lot of questions about whether the activities you're doing are going to get you in trouble later or not. Now, the devil is in the details. Implementation matters. And there are certainly parts of Mika that are not perfect and we'll discover those over time. But as a first cut, I think it was very good. It's put a lot of other nations on their back heel in terms of responding. Let me ask you two uh, other questions about uh, 
where we are with uh, some other things that are important that are related to stable coins but aren't stable coins. First, CBDCs. What's your take on that? What's your take on where we are right now uh, in terms of the adoption of some of the uh, the precursor technology, some of the beta technologies that the Fed is running? Uh, and secondly, deposit coins uh, or so-called tokenized deposits, another alternative uh, to stable coins. Tell us where you see those two technologies. All right. So let's start with CBDCs, which I think are a little bit of a misunderstood topic, right? So it is not necessarily the case that the existence of a CBDC requires you to use a blockchain. What we're really talking about there is just a digital form of the physical currency that usually makes up money. So like in the United States, when you hold a $100 bill, they're talking about a canonical digital equivalent of that $100 bill for a CBDC. And I would tell you there, having spoken to some of the people at the Federal Reserve working on this, the devil is really in the details. Right? Do you have a CBDC on a public blockchain that's tradable with no restrictions so that it works you know, substantially similarly to cash? Do you not even use a blockchain and only distribute the CBDC wholesale to some of the large banks? In which case, all this really is is a replacement for the back end that we currently use at the Federal Reserve. These are wildly divergent paths and I don't think they've been settled upon yet. So I think a lot of the CBDC debate is premature. And the answer is in many of their implementations, they will coexist with things like stable coins, especially if they're more wholesale money. You'll just have a stable coin that is potentially backed by the CBDC. On the other hand, when you look at things like bank deposit tokens, that is a different form of money. As we discussed earlier in this conversation, when you deposit at a bank, you are lending money to that bank. That is definitely not the same thing as having a $100 bill in your pocket. And it's also not the same thing as owning, say, a share of a government money market fund where you're secured only by T-bills. Their bank deposit tokens are you taking credit risk to the bank, especially if they are uninsured. So in many ways, the mental model you should have is more like the commercial paper market where you're lending short-term funding to an entity like a JP Morgan or a BFA. I guess we could ask the question, the next level question is whether uh, Bank of America and JP Morgan are in fact implicitly guaranteed by the federal government. That uh, probably a political question, but an interesting one. Yeah, and I think, you know, the answer to that probably depends on which way the political winds are blowing at any particular point in time. The answer has turned out to be yes recently, but especially as some people in government turn slightly more anti-crypto, I'm not so sure a deposit token would necessarily be backed. So there may be layers to that question as well. Oh, I think there are probably a lot of layers to that question. Uh, I, I think the uh, implicit uh, demand deposit account guarantee is probably a pretty safe bet, uh, no matter which party is in office, no matter what they may say, uh, as they're running for office when you find uh, yourself in that position. I, I mean, I remember that vote on the House floor, uh, I guess, uh, back in 2000, late 2007, early 2008, uh, where Republicans essentially reversed course very quickly when they saw the S&P fall off the face of a cliff. Uh, it has a way of bringing that reality check. Speaking of which, I just wanted to ask you this, and I know it's a sticky political question, but it's interesting to me uh, to see, here we are in 2023, everything is a partisan political issue, and there's certainly a partisan dimension uh, to the uh, those hearings uh, and to the framework that we see from uh, various representatives in the House and the Senate. Uh, there's certainly a pro-crypto tilt to the Republicans, an anti-crypto tilt, broadly speaking, if you had to define it, if you were forced to, uh, to the Democratic Party. Uh, but it's also interesting to see that there are some outliers on this. There are some sort of uh, uh, age-related uh, sort of factors. I was, I, I'm always uh, impressed uh, when I see Congressman Richie Torres uh, from the state of New York, uh, who is a progressive who probably feels very differently uh, from many libertarians who are passionate about crypto but is interested in this technology. Talk a little bit about the political matrix that you witnessed down in Washington, D.C., and what you think its implications are for the broader crypto space. 
So I think one of the important things to realize about Washington is that all the people you see on TV there, right, like the politicians, are managing 80 different problems at once. And for most of them, crypto is not at the top of the list, right? Like if you're thinking about what people care about, it's probably like debt ceiling, tax policy, national defense, right? Somewhere on their list of 100 things in the 70s is crypto. So one thing you've got to realize is they're taking information from their staffers and the staffers are getting varying degrees of good and bad information. So for instance, I had an exchange during the hearing with Representative Foster, and I want to be clear, I spoke with him afterwards. He's a very intelligent guy. This is a man with a PhD in physics who worked at one of the major labs in the space. Like we are not talking about a lack of intellectual horsepower. I just think that exchange was indicative of us not having done a good enough job educating people and the staffers not always being completely up to speed on what the technologies are in the space. This so is, I would you're, say- you're, tra you're talking about Bill Foster from uh, Florida, who is uh, a Democrat. Uh, I, sorry, yeah. So I think the core point I'm getting to is I'm not sure there's as much of a political divide as people think, so much as an informational mm -hmm. divide. Right. So if you look at somebody like Richie Torres, he's taken the time to learn the space. He's very informed on it. He knows what's going on. He's dealt with the NYDFS. I think as people dig in and understand this is really just an emerging technology question, right, like from a base layer. And the real question is just how do we put regulatory rails around it that will work properly to protect consumers and embrace innovation at the same time? This should be one of those bipartisan spaces to be truly anti-crypto in a maximalist stance is to be anti-technology. And that's really never been a winning political platform in America. Awesome, we're about to run out of time, but we've got a couple of viewer questions. I was wondering if we do a quick speed round, uh, maybe 30 seconds answers to these questions. I know they're not 30 second questions, but it'd be great to just get your view uh, on some of this uh, stuff that's coming in because they're really good and insightful questions as always from our viewers, no surprise there. First one comes just from Gary on the Real Vision website. Uh, and Gary asks, do you have a sense of the time that the US has to decide on either the approval or non-approval of stable coins before they move to another currency as primary? Basically the question there from Gary is the clock's ticking. How much time do you think we have on it? So short answer, I think right now, euro dollar stable coins, by which I mean offshore dollar denominated stable coins are being created. And if those work in those scale, even if we pass a framework here, there's no guarantee they come back. Those are the stepping stone to getting to other currencies. So I would say within two years, you're looking at scaled offshore dollar stable coins. And within call it four years, we're probably looking at people pushing into other currencies and creating an on-chain FX market to do that. Yeah, great answer. Uh, this one comes just from Colin McDonald on YouTube. Will BRIC countries use gold against their stablecoin? Asking if gold will back BRIC country stablecoins. Well, as somebody who was at Paxos, where we were the issuer of a gold-backed stablecoin, that's totally Paxos. possible. Uh, the question becomes, where do you custody that gold? Do people trust it? Because again, with any like stablecoin that has a physical commodity behind it, you need physical security. I think if they can solve that problem, historically speaking, gold has been the neutral exchange for value when there's not a global reserve currency. To me, that's totally feasible and does not require the BRIC countries to trust each other's individual currency. So it's probably the least common denominator they settle on over time. Okay, final question. This comes just from Ralph on the Real Vision website. It's a great question. I wish you had more time to answer it because uh, it's right in your wheelhouse. What does Austin think of the blockchain bonds that have been issued, uh, there have been several offerings in Europe. Great question, Ralph. Yeah, so they're interesting experiments. I think 
all sorts of securities probably ultimately deserve to be on a blockchain where you can settle them instantly, right? Like I pay for something and receive the thing in the same transaction. So I find all of these to be like, call it fascinating science experiments. But right now it's just a science experiment. There's a lot that goes on with the bond behind the scenes, right? You got to track cash flows, covenants, like bindings on the issuers, you know, just the amount of brain damage that goes into something like managing a bond for DTCC is immense. And there's mistakes all the time. So we do have to get all of that machinery on chain before I think it's really fully formed, but it is cool to see. In the old days, you would literally have an ops person walk into the room, waving the physical certificates uh, at the head of the desk, screaming about the problems. Uh, those were fun times. Austin, speaking of fun times, this is a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. I hope you can come back and do this again. A really fantastic conversation here today. Final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, I would say the key takeaways are, one, stable coins are coming. The only question is what currency they're going to be in and what jurisdictions they're going to come out of. This is a global competition for capital, and that will always continue at all times. And then the second one that I would have for everybody is, despite all of the political chaos in the United States, things like Mika did just happen. There are other jurisdictions moving ahead very constructively in the world. So in some ways, I've never been more optimistic about the technology, despite what we're seeing here in the United States. Austin Campbell, this has been the most information-dense 30 minutes in crypto podcasting. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have to do this again soon. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for watching, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.